when was the last moment you felt in the past 24 hours that you had loved well? Take a moment and breathe in deeply and notice that moment. Remember that moment. Reflect on it. And give thanks for it. And then I might invite you now take a moment and reflect in the past 24 hours where maybe you didn't love so well what was that about for you reflect on it and give thanks for it because you see it Welcome to the uh, Sacred Speaks. Today's participant is Pastor Juanita Rasmus, and she is, <laughs> I don't even know what to call Juanita. She's like a, I don't know, part angel. I think every one of us needs somebody in our lives that can remind us to uh, slow down and take a breath. And that little snippet earlier from our conversation you just listened to is one of those, you know, she drops into those places and you can tell she, she practices what she preaches, so to speak. So I want to introduce you to, uh, to Juanita in a second. And, uh, and also, well, let me do that first. I'll just introduce you through her bio. Juanita Rasmus is a pastor, spiritual director, and contemplative with a passion for outreach to our world's most impoverished citizens. Pastor Juanita co-pastors the St. John's United Methodist Church located in downtown Houston with her husband, Rudy. In 2009, Juanita was diagnosed with kidney cancer, but she wasn't afraid. Instead, she waited to see what the lesson of the disease would bring her. Years later, Juanita and Rudy have continued their mission of bringing life to those who struggle on a daily basis, and they created a nonprofit called The Bread of Life, which has changed the landscape of downtown Houston, providing an array of services to families in peril and homeless individuals. The project also distributes over nine tons of fresh produce weekly to hungry families. It has been on the forefront of the HIV-AIDS prevention, providing solutions to food insufficiency, housing the homeless, and disaster relief. Today, with a focus on social impact, investing, the Bread of Life owns and operates EcoLife Employment, LLC, a digital employment and staffing agency for men and women with troubled past lives, and the amazing KMAZ 102.5 FM radio station in Houston. Thanks to generous support from a collaboration of government agencies and a significant donation from Tina Beyonce and Solange Knowles, the St. John's downtown campus includes the Knowles Temenos Apartments a 43-unit single-room occupancy development designed to provide permanent living accommodations for formerly homeless men and women. Temenos CDC portfolio also includes an 80-unit apartment community to meet the growing need for permanent supportive housing for the previously homeless in Houston, Texas, and a 15-unit apartment project for chronic inebriates and the most vulnerable homeless individuals in the Houston community. 
18 years ago, Kelly Rowland teamed up with Beyonce and Tina Knowles to build the Knowles Rowland Center for Youth, where community empowerment activities for the young and old take place every week. The facility, several years back, was serving as a base for operations for Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. So if, if it seems like uh, Juanita and her husband Rudy have been involved in, uh, well, just say if they get their, their hands involved in everything where people are in need. Um, they are a gift for Houston and the world. Uh, I suggest you go look them up. Uh, the website for the church is St. John's, S-T-J-O-H-N-S, downtown.org. And the Bread of Life is at breadoflifeinc.org, B-R-E-A-D-O-F-L-I-F-E-I-N-C.org. Uh, you can listen to a conversation that I had with Rudy uh, back a while ago in episode 30, and here is episode 40 with Juanita. Uh, music today, the theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. Get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And today I'm using a uh, selection, two selections from Todd Pipes. And I've got a link to his iTunes account, or his iTunes page uh, at the iTunes store. Um, the two albums you just heard... Uh, a selection from A River off Taurus Petals from 2005. And at the end of the episode, you'll hear the full song of Mainsail to Sky King from 2018. The song is Our, West, Our Way West. And I think that's it. And um, oh, other than uh, uh, like the Sacred Speaks on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And of course, I think I said something in the uh, the episode, but uh, Rudy and Juanita just celebrated their 34th wedding anniversary. So congratulations to you both. Juanita, thank you for your time. This was a, uh, as we agreed, a life-giving conversation. And uh, I'm eager for more. So I'll leave it there and bring you the conversation. Thanks for listening. Juanita. Hey. Hi. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm stoked. Um, you've, you've been an, on my mind for a long time, and now our lives are intersecting in these really cool ways. Um, I was really excited. Uh, you know, I'm, I may have reached out to you. I mean, gosh, it's been like three, four months ago, and uh, you, were, you were deep in writing, and you were wise enough to say that you can't take on anything else right now until... A later date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's that going for you? <laughs> well, it's a, a long-earned wisdom, you might say. <laughs> oh, boy. It sure is, isn't it? You, uh, writing is a pretty arduous task. It is. Um, so you've, your, your writing is a, is a memoir. Yes. And we've got a lot of ground to cover, even in our little preliminary conversation you were talking about mysticism and contemplative and uh, you know socially engaged spirituality exactly. you know there's a and, which is uh, the life you've been living for a long time now and so in, in order to help um as i said everybody you know you put a mic in front of somebody's face you get to learn them in a new way sure and so i'll get to know you in a new way and um get to know you i'm very excited <laughs> Might be scary, but we'll hold on for the ride. You know what? We'll hold on to each other if we need to. I'm fine with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here. If uh, if I start, you know, 
looking over and extend my hand. We can okay. just hold hands. I'll just grab it, okay? <laughs> Believe me, I, I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> See, Rudy said the same thing, that I'm a hugger. I said, I'm a hugger too. Man. Yeah. And I like that y'all are huggers. You're important. I agree. Y'all, um, y'all are really doing something fantastic here in town and all over the place. So let, let's um, let's go in. Where does all this begin f- for you? Because we're talking about religion, spirituality, contemplation. You were just talking to my friend Shannon about mind-body medicine. Yeah. You've got a lot going on. Yeah. So you're you're engaged in a number of ways, and I'm sure you wear a lot of different hats. And um, of course, we're we're going to talk about the religious and the spiritual question, but just also who you are. Where where does all this begin for you? Well, I have to begin at the beginning, I guess, okay? Juanita, I love it. I, I love your style. No, I'm a native Houstonian. And uh, if I begin at the real beginning, it would start with a 13-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy who were in middle school and met each other at Vacation Bible School, and that would be my parents. And um, they ended up going to high school together and getting married the year after high school um, from Cashmere High School, which is in Fifth Ward, Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, near northeast subdivision, uh, I mean suburb of um, downtown Houston. And it is an incredible, or at least it was an incredible community to grow up in as a kid. Mickey Leland grew up there. Kirby John Caldwell grew up there. Uh, Barbara Jordan, uh, I don't know that she so much grew up there, but I believe at one point she might have lived in the area or something, or at least was politically active there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a number, El Franco Lee, there are a number of people who came out of Fifth Ward who have been substantial um, movers and shakers in the city, particularly politically. Um, and so this was a neighborhood where, for me anyway, um, my grandparents had built their house. Um, then they built the house that I grew up in with my parents. They built um, two other properties uh, on the physical lot that they had. And um, this was a grandfather who never made, at his peak, he made $9,000. And that's when he was 92 years old, still working every day. And so what I was come, he doing? Uh, he worked for a... Um, company now we would call them scrap metal companies Uh where people bring in metal and they sell it to the company and then that company reprocesses it or does whatever they do with it iron and metal and the place was on yale street i remember it it's now a walmart on yale street Mm -hmm. i remember it because you had to pass the mrs bear's bakery on washington avenue and then you would turn right to take my grandfather to work the few times i got to go with my parents when they dropped him off to work so it's been a, a rich history primarily started in fifth ward in terms of my life and um then my father wanted uh, an opportunity for my sister and I to have a better kind of um, education and so we moved to A-Leaf but I think for me what was key about living uh in my neighborhood was that there were so many people who owned property who owned their own homes and not only owned their own homes but then built what we would call rental properties mm. uh, on their property. And so I grew up seeing housing made available for people who would not have had housing otherwise. 
So our life, Rudy and I together have really come full circle because he grew up in a very similar situation with his family, seeing housing made available. And so it became natural for us and our work then to make housing a part of that. Um, but in terms of my spiritual roots, um, it was a grandmother who lived next door who saw to it that every Wednesday we went to the church that was two blocks away to have Bible study and to be with the other young people in our neighborhood. And there we would practice singing in the choir for Sunday and that kind of thing. Um, then I had a on my paternal grandparents side they also lived in the same area but their community was called cashmere gardens and so they picked us up on sundays to take us to church my parents at the time weren't necessarily all that engaged in sunday worship per se and um so one grandmother took care of making sure we got some god on wednesdays and the other grandmother picked us up to get some god on sundays and so um i have to give them credit and thanks but i also have to thank my parents my parents weren't anti god by any stretch of the imagination my father's a minister called into ministry but i think for my dad at a very young age he didn't see a model for christianity that was potent and relevant and had the kind of integrity that i think he needed and so for him, I think it was easier to stay home than to be confronted with what he didn't see that he thought he needed, that he couldn't find. Um, but from there, um, I remember playing on my grandmother's front porch and I always say that um, they had a concrete front porch and you had to go up three or maybe four concrete steps to get on that porch. But before you did there were these pillars on, on both sides of those steps. If we had been rich white people, we would have had lions on those pillars. But since we weren't rich white people, there were no lions. But I would climb up those three or four steps and step onto the pillar, and then I would jump off. And I loved it. That's better than a lion. Oh, my gosh. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, and then I remember uh, when I first, I don't even know if I really knew how to read at this point, but I remember climbing up the stairs and having my sister and my cousin sit at the bottom of the stairs, and then I stood at the top, and I preached sermons from Psalm 23 because my grandmother had taught me the 23rd Psalm as a child. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I could really read it. I just knew it. And so from there, I would preach. And I didn't recall that until about maybe 20 years ago that I used to stand there preaching as a little girl, which was very... Um, different from the kind of model I grew up with in an African-American traditional black Baptist church uh, where you often told no woman will ever stand in this pulpit, at least in my faith tradition, mm -hmm. that was the case. So it was amazing to me to recall, wow, I've kind of had this sense of, of engagement and how I might be involved in religion for a very long time. Um, so that's kind of where it started. Uh, Rudy and I met at a funeral. Hmm. Um, Rudy said that he saw me come in and um, could not keep his eyes off of my thighs. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was my calves. I don't think my thighs were necessarily <laughs> showing. Oh, so maybe it, it was my calves. It rhymes, though. It's good. <laughs> exactly. I like eyes and thighs. <laughs> yeah, I do, too. 
Um, and and so I, at that time, I was in the insurance business with my parents. My father had started an insurance agency in the late 60s. Um, again, because he wanted to be self-employed and he knew how important it was to attempt at least to be master of your own fate. And in the 60s in Houston, in a very segregated 60s, which is so amazing to me. My husband and I are five years apart, but I don't remember any signs that said whites only or mm-hmm. coloreds only. I don't remember any of that. And so just in that five-year period, I'm grateful that there apparently was enough transition in the, the energy around race in Houston that I don't remember that. Um, I'm I'm sure there was something there. I don't know, uh, but I just don't recall it. Uh, my parents moved us to Aleph because my father wanted us to be able to function well in a white world. And at the time when we moved to Aleph, it was only white. I was the only African American in my class for four years. And when I graduated from high school, by the time I graduated from A. Leaf Elsick, shout out to A. Leaf Elsick High School, um, the by that time I think there were probably maybe twenty or thirty blacks in the high school at that point. Um, it's a very different kind of environment there now, from what I understand. But the realities are that when Rudy and I met, I was in insurance sales, selling insurance and financial products, and Rudy was doing real estate by day, and he probably told you, or Bordello by night, uh, that he and his father uh, built from the ground up. And um, when we met, I was intrigued by him, but primarily because I was selling life insurance and I wanted him to be a client. (laughs) He had other intrigues, yeah. <laughs> um, so he asked me out on a date, and so that began our relationship together, and it's been a beautiful journey. We just celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary, Harvest. so it's been a good ride. Big congratulations it's been to a you, good too. ride, yeah. yeah. Um, but when you say, where does it start, there's so many uh, elements to a start, even, you sure. know? Uh, but the, the, the sense of knowing something about God started for me in elementary school. And I'm real aware of that. Um, in the Christian tradition, and particularly in the church where I grew up, the, the, the understanding is that at some point, a person has enough insight um, to the Trinitarian God, God Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, that at some point you'll want to invite that relationship into your life and we called it accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. And so for me, I recall our pastor preaching, and I got up at the end of the sermon. It was customary that if you were going to accept Christ and join the church, that you would walk down the aisle. And I was either in maybe fifth, I'm thinking I was either in fourth or fifth grade. I just remember feeling compelled to walk down the aisle. I had not discussed this with my parents. I just stood up, walked down the aisle, and then when I turned around, my sister was behind me. And so I don't know what happened for her. Matter of fact, I need to ask her. <laughs> was she just following me, you know? Um, sometimes she did that, and, and I, I'm grateful that she trusts me enough to follow <laughs> me, you know? Um, but that was a marked beginning for me. Um, 
nothing necessarily significant happened happened in terms of my uh, relationship with Christ or my understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. But I do know that when I moved to A-Leaf, I met a couple people who uh, turned me on to some incredible reading by Watchman Nee. And I don't know if you're familiar with no. Watch- Watchman Nee. He's written, a, he was a, um, a gentleman who lived in some part of China. I don't remember where. But he wrote, he had uh, come into relationship with Christ and began to evangelize in China and wrote just tremendous books. One is called The Spirituality of Man. Um, There was just a variety of other books. But anyway, this young woman who was in school with me, Tammy Stringfellow, I'll always remember, uh, we were talking one day, I think at lunch, and the next day she said, I'm going to bring you a book. And she brought me a book and turned me on to the writings of Watchman Nee, which for me, I had never really... Uh, consciously been aware of many other writings regarding Christianity other than really just studying the Bible. That was kind of the thing you did. You read your Bible. But here she was introducing me to these writings that were about this man's experience and what he was learning about growing in relationship with Christ and what it meant to um, have um, a life that was um, uh about cultivating the spiritual aspect of one's being, not just the identity and how you're presented in the world. You know, so often we introduce ourselves and we say, oh, I'm Juanita and I do this thing. You know, I'm a pastor, I'm a mom, a dad, teacher, whatever it mm-hmm. is that I might be doing. But he was talking about an, in, an inside life. And that was just blowing me away. And so I loved it. Um, And I think for me, a great kind of awakening happened. And then I met Rudy, and he knew something about Watchman Nee. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, this man is enlightened. This is wonderful. He reads the Houston Business Journal, and he reads Watchman Nee, too. You know, so what more could I have asked for, right? So that's kind of how we began. We got married in 1983. No, 83? No, 85. We dated in 83 and got married in 85. And um, one of the guys in our wedding invited us to come to Windsor Village United Methodist Church where Kirby John Caldwell is the pastor in Southwest Houston. And so we started attending, and um, there again, um, I just was feeling this, um, I, don't, I won't say spiritual restlessness. It was really kind of an angst. It was there was something going on inside of me and I didn't have words for it. And uh, Kirby John asked Rudy and I if we would serve on a committee at the church. And that particular committee was called the Commission on Stewardship. And it caused me because primarily I was the one on the committees. Rudy just always says he carried my box with my stuff in it, you know. Um, and so I was on all these committees and then it realized, I realized that I, I was experiencing a kind of a transformation and awakening of sorts. And there was a female clergy woman on our staff. Her name was Pastor Yolan Heron Palmore. And so I went to her one day and I told her, something's going on with me and I'm not quite sure what it is. 
Um, and by the time we met, probably over a six or eight week period, I realized I was being called to ministry. And during that same time, Rudy was having that same kind of awareness. He was in a Bible study that um, was just me and, and was getting his questions answered. And in that process, uh, the next thing I knew, we were downtown at St. John's in 1992 um, providing meals to homeless people. Hmm. And uh, so that's kind of, in essence, what the journey looked like. Um for me, in 1999, we had been there seven years. The ministry had grown 500 people a year, pretty much, were joining the church. We were serving thousands of meals uh, weekly to the homeless community and around downtown Houston. We knew very clearly that we were called to an urban church. We thought it was the urban church near our house. I mean, that's kind of convenient, you know, but <laughs> it wasn't. Needless to say, we get downtown um, and... We knew we were supposed to be there. Um, not so much as pastors, because we didn't go there with that intention. We just went with the idea of how can we help. What drew you in? Hmm? What drew you in? Oh, gosh. When we got there, Rudy went first because he was um, a real estate broker, and Kirby John asked him to go check out the physical structure of the real estate, see what he thought. And when we got there, or when he got there, Rudy called me that evening and he said, baby, this is the place. And when he said that, it was just like, I knew that he meant this is where we were supposed to serve. What drew us in, what drew Rudy might be different for what drew me. What drew me was just the fact that Kirby John had asked us to go down there and serve. And so we did. We started providing meals when we did the meals. We then started doing a Bible study and then a church really grew around the meal service and the services we were providing to the homeless community. The opportunity came for Kirby John was going back and forth from the suburban church to downtown every Sunday. And he had three services already in Windsor and was doing the fourth at St. John's. And so one weekend or maybe midweek, he called us and said, can one of you preach? Because I can't do it this weekend. And so that began a rotation of Rudy, Kirby John, and I preaching every other uh, service. So there was always this rotation between the three of us. I can't say that I got drawn in as much as I was allowed to serve my way in. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And when I served, I had a sense that I was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Well, the question that I, I'm wondering, what does it mean to you to preach? And when you're talking about how you're preaching, how do you envision that? What's, what's that? What's the purpose of that? You know, it's so funny. Um, I thought that I was going to become an attorney when I was in high school. Um, and that was what was on my mind. I'm going to go to school and I'm going to become an attorney because I want to stand in front of people and I want to invite them as creatively as I know how to believe what I believe. That's why I wanted to be an attorney. And then I found myself standing in a congregation inviting the people in that audience to believe what I believed. And then I found out that's what preachers do. They tell a story and they invite people to engage in that story and to 
experience life out of that story and hope and uh, healing in times of woundedness and joy in place of sadness and sorrow. And so when I realized that was why I wanted to be an attorney, it was like, okay, cool. This is it. This is this is my space of standing and proclamation and um, revelation and transformation ultimately. Well, I got a default to my son here. He's 13. And I, um, <clears throat> after I talked to Rudy, I took him to your church. And I, I you know, he did the typical kid thing where he was like, ah, I gotta go to church. What are we doing? Dad, you're always dragging me Nobody's into this stuff. Doing. I can just hear it. God. We walked into that place. He was like, what is happening in here? It's very different than anything I'd ever seen. I mean, not not necessarily from a structural. I mean, the structure is a bit different. It's it's, it's inviting. Uh, you know, 10 a.m. You've got you know lights that are colored and everything, and it kind of has a rock and roll vibe to it. You know, it's that would like, be Rudy. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> the ambience creator. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Rudy's quote was, uh, he said to me, you know, you can't bore people. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So we walked in there, and and my my son was like. This is unlike anything I've ever seen. We were hugging people and singing with people and standing up and sitting down and dancing. And there's some of the best singers in the world I've ever heard were singing on the stage. It's an experience. It is an experience. So the, but the, and there was plenty of preaching too. I mean, Rudy had had sent out some message that he would be preaching there, and so we went and saw him preach. And um, it it is a different kind of experience that I think starts to tap into all the senses and. Most of all, you know, you just really feel engaged with the people that you're around. And it's a special place that y'all been creating. So to hear about its genesis and kind of get to know your side of things a bit, um, <laughs> it's just uh, what a great service you guys have been doing for the Thank world. Thank you. But, but in particular, preaching. You know, I, I told a friend of mine who's a uh, James Durkitz. I interviewed him and I reference him. I know probably a lot on this podcast. But I told him a while ago, I said, you know, it's so cool what you do. You, you're a priest, and, and what that means is that you know on some level you're going to be speaking to an audience on Sunday. And so you've got to be thoughtful about how you're speaking uh, and thoughtful about what you're speaking. And, and so, you know, you, you, the thing, he's a, he's a deep fella, and so I, I know that he could, you know, go for a run on the beach and have some powerful experience about a piece of trash blowing by. And... Um, but he gets to talk about that. And so I, I think something about preaching, at least these really healthy fellows, people that I hang around that are, that are priests, um, their theology is really open to paying attention to everyday experience and helping people begin to understand, I think, how to reflect on their lives in a way that provides meaning. You know, that, you know, it's not just a, you know, bullshit conversation where you're sitting at a bus stop, you know, in fact, you can learn something if you really lean into it exactly. or, you know, you're waiting in line and you're, you know, on your phone or you can talk to the person next to you. We can transform our everyday, pretty much every moment experience into something that provides metaphor and symbol and it can map onto other areas of our lives. And that I think is the coolest thing about preaching, you know, that there, there, there are certainly some enlivening aspects. And I wonder what you say about that, you know, how, how you maybe create, create what you talk about on Sundays. 
Well, um, my experience of preaching has probably evolved over time, but I've always basically been a preacher teacher. And I'm uh, between Rudy and I, Rudy is more of the social justice um, um, drum beater, you know, uh, and I'm the contemplative, reflective one saying, now, when was the last moment you felt in the past 24 hours that you had loved well? Take a moment and breathe in deeply and notice that moment, remember that moment, reflect on it, and give thanks for it. And then I might invite you now, take a moment and reflect in the past 24 hours where maybe you didn't love so well. What was that about for you? Reflect on it and give thanks for it because you see it. Um, this past Sunday, I preached at a friend's church, and the theme that they're working through is 40 days of gratitude during Lent. Mm -hmm. And so I used the passage about the lepers and how there were 10 lepers that Jesus um, healed. The lepers had asked him to have mercy on them. Uh, needless to say, leprosy in that day was uh, very ostracizing. You were cast away from everything that was ordinary and regular in your day. Um, you were cast away from business and from the marketplace and from, if you were self-employed, who was going to buy anything from a leper, you know. And so this idea of these 10 people whose lives, because of a disease, have been turned upside down, and they see Jesus at a distance, the text says, and they say, Lord, Jesus, have mercy on us. And he stops and he looks at them. And then he says to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Because the priests were the only people who had the authority to restore them to community again. And my message was about why is it the text says that nine, excuse me, ten were healed, but only one came back to say thank you. So what gets in the way of gratitude? What gets in the way of our capacity to acknowledge unmerited favor from another? What gets in the way of us being able to acknowledge our benefactors and to acknowledge our benefits? And so I talked about four things. I don't even know if I can remember them all now, but one of mm. them is boredom. We are so materialistic we have so much stuff happening in our lives that often we don't stop and pay attention and engage with the simple ways that life is showing up for us as gift or that people are showing up as gift in our lives. And so we're kind of on to the remote control. Next. Oh, I know what that story is about. Next. I know what that's going to do. I, I, you know, I know who he is. I know who she is. We make all these kind of assumptions, and we just kind of treat life out of a space of boredom. And then the other thing, the other point I made was about um, narcissism, how we get to a point where we say, well, I've achieved all this. I am do this. This is owed to me. And so when we live out of that kind of space, then we don't pay attention to the fact that Jesus just restored our lives 
so that we can get on with it, you know. Um, and so when I preach and share, I am always trying to invite people to pay attention to your life. That's where the mystery is. That's where the, I heard somebody say this morning, uh, I was listening to a tape of a woman. Her name is Agnes Sanford. This tape was probably done in the 1960s. Uh, she was married to an Episcopal priest, and she had a ministry of healing. And she said, pay attention to the mystery and the magical. And she said, now, I know I might not use that word magical, but that was the word that was available to her in that moment. And I say, yeah, pay attention to the mystery and the magical. Mm -hmm. You know, if I stand and preach and it's just information, then you might leave out informed. My prayer is that you'll also get inspiration, something that will move in your spirit, that will cause you to awaken to a new way. Even if that idea of awakening is just to be a little more present to the fact that when you came to this church, the lights were different and people were hugging and there was dancing and lively music. All of that is a part of, for me, helping people to come awake out of the dull drums of ordinary life. It felt, I think the word that comes to mind is it felt restorative. Oh, that's a good word. And I think that, I mean, I felt energized and, uh, and not in a way that was like, you know, sometimes you feel almost manipulated by, by folks, you know, to try to have an experience. I didn't get that at all. I had an experience, you know, I, my, my son did too, but it was very restorative. I mean, I loved, you know, the, the hugs were sustained. Yeah. You know, it yeah. wasn't this like yeah. bullshit yeah. kind of like, eh. yeah. Yeah. you know, it, it yeah. was a like present. Exactly. And the the songs were were uh, were sung with with a full voice. Yeah, nobody was mumbling. It 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 it, it was a community that was really giving permission to kind of experiment with yourself in a in, in, within community. I just really uh, and for for me to be touched is one thing, but for the thirteen year old, you know, to be touched is, is another. Yeah, and he was. Yeah, he was it. Yeah. The the other thing that comes up is you're you I can tell you you go into this I feel it in the room with you when you started talking about preaching and kind of what's behind it. You go into this different kind of embodiment, you know, it's interesting. And I, I was thinking I was having this fantasy as you were talking and you know, kind of curiosity about what it is like, you know, what informs your presence and your contemplation. I, I do wonder that move for you from the fifth ward into a leaf what was that like for you being a, a black girl in a white school because those are big schools oh yeah absolutely I, well it wasn't a leaf elsick wasn't so big because i was in the first graduating class so i was the first freshman first sure. sophomore so my you know the, oh, yeah, the that cohort was tiny, yeah. you know we we were all together in right. that regard one of the things that's so neat about my parents is that um when i was a little girl my father had a stereo system in the living room, and he wired a speaker 
into our bedroom and into his bedroom so that he could play Earl Nightingale LPs while we slept. And those LPs were things like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the others. I, you would think I would know them very well. Uh, they're just not coming to me right now. But, but my father and my mother, because they did it in agreement, were aware that my sister and I were going to be living in a white world. And so he did his best to help prepare us for that. So often I was remembering, my daughters went to high school at Lamar High School on Westheimer. Across the street, there's a Baskin Robbins ice cream. I know it. When I was a little girl in Fifth Ward, my daddy would take my sister and I every now and then to that Baskin Robbins. That's in the middle of River Oaks. We were always the only black kids, black family, in that Baskin Robbins when my dad took us. When my dad took us, he could have bought a gallon of ice cream for what he probably paid for a scoop for my sister and I in ice cream cones. But my father and my mother were conscious of trying to help us to feel comfortable in a world where people were probably not going to look like us as we matriculated into education and moved out into the workplace because my dad wasn't raising us to be ordinary, but to tap into whatever in us might be extraordinary. And in that way, we were constantly in places where there were white people and there weren't any other blacks. I remember there was a hotel called the Dunfee's Royal Coach Inn on Southwest Freeway. It's a car dealership there now. But it was this castle of a hotel. And when you walked in, the uh, attendants, the valet, had on um, like uniforms that looked like English um uh, soldier uniforms to me as a little kid and we went there for an Easter brunch and that brunch cost my parents a fortune but I'll always remember this ice sculpture that was about 8 or 10 feet tall in the middle of this buffet table and seeing all these different kinds of foods some of which I was aware of some of which I wasn't and being able to have the opportunity to eat from this table where there are people in this room who don't look like me, certainly didn't come from my neighborhood. And for me, that probably did more for me than anything to show me what the kingdom of God looks like. That everybody is welcome at the table. And so that's what my dad and my mom showed me, that while there are some people who may say, no, you can't eat at this table, the reality is they were willing to pay the cost so that my sister and I, for an Easter Sunday, could eat at this table. That, for me, swung the doors of opportunity for me. They swung open. There might be limitations that the world would set for me, 
but my dad and my mom had freed me. And I don't think you can do anything better than that. My parents, neither of them had at the time gone to college. So they didn't really know how to tell me how to get to college. But they knew to tell me that anything I put my mind to, I had the possibilities of accomplishing. That was the best gift they could have given me to affirm that I was capable, no matter what the world might say, because the, the world, you know, there you're sometimes you're in and sometimes you're out, you know, uh, in the world, whether that be gender or sexual orientation or color of skin or whether you're coming across the Mexico border or whether you're coming from Europe or, you know, there's an in and out. Um, you know, you can be fashionably black and then all of a sudden you're not fashionably black anymore, you know. But what my parents did for me was to say, you have a place here. Sometimes that place was our home. What my experience with religion taught me is that my place is within me. Because for me, the Christian teaching really says that the kingdom of God is present right here, right now, and it is within me. And so I can always be at home in me. But you have to learn how to be at home in you. For me, in 1999, I experienced a major depressive episode. And um, at the time, I was fortunate that a clergy um, friend's wife, Jeannie Miley, her husband is uh, Martis Miley. He's the pastor at first at um, River Oaks United, uh, River Oaks Baptist. I wanted to make them United Methodist, River Oaks Baptist Church. And Jeannie and I were somewhere together and she said, let's have lunch. This is a white couple, needless to say. Um, and so we did, we had lunch and she said, I want to introduce you to my therapist. She said, because I know that you're depressed. And she did. Um, she gave me his name and number, and I called. And that happened to be Pittman McGee. And Pittman, having been a, a retired Episcopal priest, now a Jungian analyst, was able to help me as a, perhaps first as a clergy person, because I think um, when I called his office, they told me he didn't have any openings for like six months. <laughs> And based on where I was emotionally, that was like telling me, um, you know, in the year 3,000 or yeah. 30,000, <laughs> we can possibly forever see in you day. forever yeah. in a day. It was the craziest thing. But within about two weeks of having made that call, for some reason, Pittman called me. He thought, based on what he told me later, it was as though he had picked up the phone and gotten my message which really his secretary had already called me and said he wasn't available. But he ended up calling me. I'll, I'll always remember this. I was in my car. I pulled over, and he said, uh, yes, I got a call saying that you wanted to set an appointment to see me. And he said, um, I don't know if my secretary has called you back or not, but I'm booked for a while. And he said, but, but talk to me. Tell me what's going on. And so I told him, well, 
Um, I'm a pastor at St. John's downtown, and um, I've just been diagnosed with having had a major depressive episode. And he said, hold on. Um, here's what we're going to do. If it's okay with you, we're going to work you in. Whenever I have a cancellation, I'm going to need you like to be able to drop what you're doing and come meet with me. I said, great, because I wasn't doing anything. I could barely get out of bed. And um, that began this journey of helping me to realize how I had to learn to make home and the kingdom of God a place within me. And so for me, I see it in this way. Pittman helped me with my mind and the process of what was happening as an experience of the dark night of the soul where the person, I, I, I like to think of it this way, the, the children's rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Well, that idea of this, this Humpty Dumpty being an egg and this egg falls off of this wall and splatters. Shell is cracked. The yolk is intact. But the shell is devastated from the fall. And so what Pittman helped me to do was to recognize that I could not be put back together again because I could never live that way again. Mm. That my soul, my <clears throat> spirit was yearning for a different kind of life. And I understand it now as the difference between the false self and the authentic self. All right, I'm hooked. And moving into that. Yeah. Yeah. And so Pittman helped me with that part, but then there was also some other elements that came along, some other teachers. One of those teachers was Richard Foster. Um, he wrote a book called The Celebration of Discipline, and it was a major... Um, tool in my coming to realize the necessity of routine spiritual practices to ground the soul. Then with Richard came his friend and colleague and what would become later my mentor and friend, Dallas Willard. I don't know if you've known of Dallas Willard. No. Dallas Willard, for me, get, helped me to understand the necessity of thinking through what it meant to be a Christian. Richard helped me to understand there were practices that I could train my heart so that I could have the freedom to be an apprentice of Christ. But Dallas Willard wrote a very pivotal book for me, and it was called The Divine Conspiracy, and how often religion is trying to help us um, Oh, I don't want to say religion. I don't, I don't want to put it that way. Too often we can kind of walk away from religion saying, measuring our sins in, in degrees and mine isn't that bad and because there's always somebody doing Dallas shattered that notion. And he invited us to take a look at what it means to intentionally train the mind, so that we could do the things that as a believer in Christ that Jesus said we could do, like turn the other cheek. How do you train yourself to do that? Well, there's a way to train yourself to do that. 
one of those ways is by understanding that it's possible. That's number one. You know, because so easily we want to say, oh, oh, no, I'm not going to let anybody hit me twice. No, no. You know, but to begin to look at um, what it really means to allow ourselves to be yielded to both the very rational teachings of Christ as well as the very mystical teachings of Christ. And so Dallas Willard is a philosopher, was a philosopher. He passed away a few years ago. But he just, I always said, Richard opened my heart in ways that I didn't know because the spiritual practices are like um, doing yoga and Tai Chi for the heart to realize you have a greater capacity to love and to be loved than you could have ever imagined. And then Dallas always challenged my thinking um, so that I began to think differently about what does it mean to say that I follow Christ? If I'm saying that, that I'm an apprentice of Jesus and my life looks nothing like his. And when I say looks nothing like his, when, when you can't have some of the same expectations from me, that you would have of Christ, then I really have to pay attention to what is my life really saying? What is my life really looking like? Um, and so between Pittman, Richard, and Dallas, uh, I was in for a heck of a uh, transformation, reorientation, uh, disintegration, consolation, desolation, you know, uh, I was, I was on a, <laughs> on a ride, you know, um, but it was such a good ride because what happened for me, and I, I like this analogy every day, not analogy, this was my reality. Every morning while I was depressed, I would wake up feeling like I had fallen down this dark tunnel the whole night. And I got to this point where I just kept saying, Lord, could you please just let me hit the bottom of this tunnel? Because it felt like at least I would be someplace instead of this incessant feeling like I was falling. Every day I woke up from the night's sleep feeling like I had just been falling in this tunnel. And then when I did awaken in the tunnel the darkness there's a scripture that says the darkness was as light to me because I realized that I was in school and that my experience was one that I was to take note of because I was going to need the tools that I would be receiving not only for myself, but I was going to need them to share them with other people. And so for me, um, I always said that that experience of depression was hell. It was hell. Um, I woke up sleeping 18 or 20 hours a day. I would, um, I remember forgetting how to get out of the bed to go to the restroom. I remember being, um, what's a good word? Um, overcome, overwhelmed, um, pestered really by this smell 
that I could not get rid of. I kept wondering, what is this smell? And then it came to me that the smell was me because I hadn't bathed in about 30 days. And to have a husband who can lay in bed with you night after night, knowing that you can't get out of bed, knowing that you can't bathe, knowing that you can't brush your teeth, that was a real gift. That he took his vows seriously, for better or for worse. But I learned a lot, and I'm trying to capture some of what I learned in my memoirs now. that start the depression yeah um so it felt as though it happened in one day um it was august the 27th 1999 i'd gotten up prepared breakfast for our family because our life was so busy as pastors of a growing congregation that the one meal i was sure we would always have together was breakfast so i always tried to make it fun and make it Special, You know, we'd have candlelight breakfasts and heart-shaped pancakes, and it wasn't Valentine's Day, you know. Um, so I tried to make breakfast special for us. And so that morning I got up, and I prepared breakfast. I called Rudy and the girls in, and we ate breakfast. And um, when, I, when we finished, Rudy said, do you want me to take the girls to school this morning? And I said, sure, because normally I took the girls to school. So that particular morning he, he offered that, and I said, great. Um, that way I can put my makeup on in the bathroom mirror instead of the rearview mirror and uh, so I kissed them all goodbye and they left well I went into the bathroom and I started putting on mascara and all of a sudden I felt deathly ill it was as though um, the only thing I can think of that that I felt that kind of felt this way was uh, once I had the flu and it was like I felt fine and then all of a sudden I just felt like my body was falling apart and caving in I literally just felt horrible. Um, one of the things I remember feeling is, you know how when you buy a package of dry spaghetti and you break the package? Well, you know, you can't break the whole pack. But the reality is if you put enough pressure on it for long enough, those pieces of dry spaghetti will start to pop, you know. I felt my nerves in my body were popping like that inside. And so I laid down and then I got up and I, no, before I laid down, I called our secretary and I told her I am not feeling well. So I'm going to lay down. Maybe I was just moving around too fast this morning. So I'm thinking if I lay down, I'll probably be okay and I'll be able to come into the office later. And so I hung up the phone and then I, it was like having an outer body experience. I saw myself pick up the phone, hit redial, and I said to her, I'm, I'm not coming in. I don't know when I'm coming in. I don't know if I'm coming back. I'm going to take a, a medical leave or a sabbatical or something, and I hung up the phone. And I got in the bed, and I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out of the bed for weeks. I couldn't um, laugh. I, I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't feel, um, I, I remember one day, uh, first of all, I was overcome with exhaustion. So there were a combination of things going on. There was the depression. There was this exhaustion. 
um, because I come to realize that with the work we were doing with the homeless, Rudy and I did not know how to take care of ourselves for the kind of mental and emotional um, stress that comes with working with people who are hurting, people who have problems that you can't fix. And for me, being a fixer in recovery, not at that point, I, I didn't know I was a fixer who needed recovery. Um, so I was experiencing compassion fatigue and just life caved in on me on that particular day. And it was, it, it took, it seemed like years, but as I looked through my journals, it was probably more like six months, um, before I could really, with therapy and medication and rest, um, really try to get back on my feet. And when I say get back on my feet, I mean being able to get up out of the bedroom and go sit in the den. Mm. That was getting back on my feet. Um, so it was a it was a really challenging experience. And for the longest, I didn't think I was going to come back into ministry because I had this sense that something about the work we did was too much for me. Um, I, thanks to Pittman one day particularly, I had been seeing him for a while at that point, and Pittman said something to me. And since then, he and I have talked about it. I told him it devastated me when he said it. He said, you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. And when he said that, I thought he meant that I was going to have to live in that state for the rest of my life. That's what I heard him to say. Mm -hmm. That wasn't what he was saying. What he was saying to me was that the lessons that I was learning about how to care for my soul I would live with for the rest of my life so that I could live, so that I could live. I would need to take those lessons wholeheartedly so that I would be able to live the rest of my life. Um, and he was right. I was angry when he said that. Did you tell him that? I did. I, I didn't tell him that day. I, I told him much later. And the way I came to tell him was because I decided I didn't want to see him anymore. Mm -hmm. And I went and found another therapist. And I, when I told her what happened, she made me go back to Pittman and tell him what happened so that we would leave in a way that was good. And it still took me time to get through it, but I did. I went back to him and I told him, I think I need something different in therapy from this point on. And when you said this, I felt as though I was being condemned to stay in this mind-body state for the rest of my life. We've talked about it very recently, like within the past year. And um, matter of fact, he, he, he saw me at the Jung Center and he said, we, we did talk about that, didn't we? Now, I haven't talked to him about this in years. And I said, yeah, we did. He said, so we're good, right? I said, oh, we're very good. Okay, But when you don't live a reflective life, you take words at face value. And you can condemn yourself. You can condemn other people. And so one of the things that Richard Foster has brought into my life are the tools for reflection. Mm -hmm. And those tools 
Oh my God, they are so powerful because you and I both know that a moment of joy and I'll say ecstasy, a moment of gentle kindness does something in the brain. It releases endorphins and all kinds of feel-good chemicals. It lays down things in the the, uh, tracks of the brain. And when we reflect on those incredible moments, it redoes that. It re-uploads us with those feel-good emotions and with those uh, that sense of well-being. But likewise, when it's been a negative thing, it downloads that again too so that we feel that sadness all over again. We feel that darkness all over again. And so for me, engaging in the exercise of reflection and other kinds of spiritual practices like meditation and Lexio Divina and the examine and just so many other practices that the current church isn't talking about enough, you know, that is what empowers people to come into places of healing. When you give a person breathing space and when you invite them to reflect. Now, what did Pittman say? Pittman said, you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. What Pittman said and what I heard in that moment were two different things. What I heard was you are condemned to be in this condition for the rest of your life. What Pittman said was the tools that you're learning, these are going to be your resources. These will empower you for the way that you're going to live for the rest of your life. So you take good notes. You're in school. It's hard to do when you can't get out of bed. It is. But once I began to get a little clearer in my thinking, yeah. then I could start to take notes. And, and so I did. I, I tried to write down reflections and tried to pay attention to things that, you know, but God is so good. Oh, my God. I remember one day I was in my bedroom and the Lord said, get up and go sit in the den. And I'm thinking to myself, Go sit in the den. You want me to drag my body, which felt like it weighed about 500 pounds, you know. And so I go ahead and sit in the den, and I'm looking out the window, and I'm like, okay, God, why am I sitting here looking out the window? And the Spirit said, keep watching. So I'm sitting there. We had a chicken that belonged to our neighborhood. Now, we live in a subdivision, but we live near a part of the city called Acres Home. Mm -hmm. And in Acres Homes... People have chickens and horses and all kinds of good stuff. And so this chicken, which I found out later was actually a hen, not a rooster, which I thought it was a rooster, but that tells you how much I knew about chickens. So this hen is sitting in our backyard on the fence. And out of the corner of my eye, I catch something moving and it's a squirrel. And so The chicken is standing on, let's say, the west side of the fence. The squirrel is on the south side. And the squirrel is running, 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 and stops about a foot in front of the chicken, right? And it's a standoff between the chicken and the hen. I mean, between the chicken and the squirrel. And the squirrel is wagging his tail and looking at the hen, and the hen isn't moving. She's just sitting there looking at him like, I dare you, right? And they're in the standoff. Then all of a sudden... 
I notice the squirrel jumps up into the tree that was hanging over them and climbs in the tree, then gets on top of the electrical wires that are outside and finishes his journey or her journey on those wires. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, God, what was I supposed to see about this? And I heard clearly, not every problem has to be gone through. Sometimes it's best just to go around. And so God used nature in that space where I couldn't read. I couldn't process to think to read. Uh, I remember telling somebody that the letters could have been boxcar big. And I couldn't read because my mind was just that shut down. But when God showed me this picture of these two animals and how the squirrel, when you saw the size of the squirrel to the size of the hen, you knew the squirrel wasn't going to win. And to think that that squirrel was so wise to say, I'm going to take the way out and around this because I can't tackle this. And I thought, oh my God. How many times have I taken on some notion, some thought, some idea that I could fix everything, that I could make things okay for people when that wasn't even my work to do? But as a fixer in recovery, you often think you can fix stuff for people. And sometimes you may be able to give them a tool, but the real work usually has to be done by the person. And so that was one of my first lessons. And God used nature in that way so many times. My cat and my dog, best teachers. I'm serious. I believe you. I'm, I'm in bed. I can't get out. A few months before, my sister had asked me to keep her cat for her. What was supposed to be a short-term thing became a long-term thing. And so here I am every day in bed, and every day this cat is sitting at the end of the bed, like watching over me, making sure I'm okay. And then my dog, my dog taught me that I had not cultivated the fine gift, the fine practice of playing by myself. Mm. And my dog taught me how to play by myself. My cat taught me how to ask for what you need. These are lessons that you would think most people would know this, but I didn't know this. I didn't know how to ask for what I needed when I needed help. Because as many Americans rooted in a Puritan society, um, we tend to think asking for help is a sign of weakness. So surely I must be able to tackle this chicken on the fence by myself. Surely I can overcome this obstacle by myself, you know. And so I learned so many basic things about life. The need to ask for help. The need to learn to play by myself. Because as a child, I didn't play a lot. I played at being an adult. So, 
two questions at the same time. <laughs> okay, we'll try. I'm going to try to work. <laughs> uh, the, the first thing, I guess, is more of a statement. Pittman was interviewed on episode five. <gasps> oh, wow. Podcast, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so anybody listening, go, go, go back to that one, too. Um, you said a couple of things I want to go back to because I'm, I'm, you're, 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 you're obviously articulating yourself so well through this dark experience. Um, the, it's, I guess it's fascinating to me in the first place that you, you have these kind of this dual process that's going on, you know, your, your experience of what Pittman said, and then the kind of reality of what was intended. And so there's some deeper, deeper reality than your initial reaction, you know, your, your kind of, uh, egoic conclusions, you know, mm-hmm. and in the same way that you're talking about looking at a chicken and a squirrel, then anybody could just write that off and say, you know, oh, it's a bird, you know, right. whatever. Yeah. But you're, you're you're then looking beyond what's presented and you're getting at the something deeper. Exactly. You know? And so these, these two things are really showing something about the potential of our lived experience and how we can kind of go beyond what's in our initial thoughts about something and, or what's, what's just presented. So you've, you've, given a couple of images, one in particular is the egg that's being shattered. And the next thing that you said or around there was the dark night of the soul. And that may be a new idea for people. It may not be, but it, it may be a new idea for people listening. I wonder if you can speak about that a little bit. Um, well, I'll speak from my own experience. What I recognize is that there is a self inside of us that is the self that we were always intended to be. And yet, the influences of our, um, a a friend of mine used the term nacio, it's a a Spanish word that means your nation, but it means all the influences around you, okay? And so I'll just use his word nacio, Mm -hmm. I like it. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea of my nacio was not one that was helping to cultivate an authentic self in me. And the nacio or the, the, the family of origin and um, the neighborhood, the community, my school. As a child, very early on, I had this notion that if you work hard and do a good job, then things will go well for you. Because that seemed to be the rule, as best I could tell. As a child, uh, Richard Rohr says that we have our childhood programs for happiness. And so for me, my childhood program for happiness said, work hard, do a good job, and um, everything will be well. Your life will be well. Well, that's not true. Because life happens whether you work hard and do a good job or not. But I had formed my own sense of self around working hard, doing a good job. Now, at the core of that really was my need for acceptance and approval. Hmm. And I had not fully recognized how that had shaped my identity and had shaped, we'll kind of say, the shell of my existence. There was an inside of me that was saying, you are already accepted. 
You don't need to work for anybody else's acceptance or approval. But I didn't know how to navigate that. What does it look like to not be a performance addict? And performance addiction is very socially acceptable, and especially as a pastor. You know, everybody wants to know you're working hard, and everybody know, wants to know that if, if there's a job that needs done, give it to her because she'll do it, and she'll not only do it, she'll do it well. Right. You'll be glad you turned it over to her. And so you begin to live into that, and there's a cost for that. Because in that, you are unable to set healthy boundaries. You take on things that are never yours to have been taken on in the first place. Like that squirrel with the wisdom to know, I'm not taking that on. That's not for me to take <laughs> on, you know. I, I, but I had no sense of that. And so the dark night of the soul is this, this essence for me where I had to become very still and very quiet so that I could go through this process of having my ego put in its proper place. We grow numerically, and it's often seen on the outside, but often we're still functioning as five- or six-year-olds who are trying to get attention and affection and to be appreciated and valued. And for me, I needed it said verbally. I needed people to say, oh, Juanita, you did such a good job. Thank you. We appreciate that. Or to say, oh, Juanita, you're such a smart little girl. I, and I, I crave that with such a vengeance that I almost turned my marriage upside down because my husband did not praise me. But he didn't know that that was my addiction, and neither did I until this crash came. And so what the crash did was to reveal the places in me that needed a deep healing and to reveal the places in me, in my soul, that needed tending. See, it wasn't just healing that was needed. There was some tending, some care that had to be done. And the spiritual practices helped me to tend my soul and to learn to care for my soul. And especially in light of the kind of work we do where compassion is needed and where it's important to be able to know one's limitations and where it's important to not need anybody to affirm you. Uh, when you're working with hurting people, they're not really capable of making sure your affirmation tank is filled. That's work you have to do. So for me, the dark night is really about a person being able to come into their authentic self and awareness of the authentic self. And it usually starts with a shattering of some kind of the self that one believes one to be. How long did it, I don't know, how long was that with you? When it started, because I when I read, I, for those listening, Juanita sent me a couple of chapters of her forthcoming book, and the um, the thing that stuck out to me was the way you kind of wrote wrote about your first smile. That really resonated. Oh my goodness, I will always remember that day. At that point, I was ready. I was. 
able to drive the girls to school, but I still hadn't gone back to work yet. And so I was taking the girls to school and we were in this hideous green minivan that my husband had purchased for me. <laughs> he and the girls had gone shopping to buy something. And I think as I look back on it, they wanted the old happy Juanita back. And so they thought, we'll go buy her a van, you know, a swagger wagon, you know. And it was olive green. Anyway, that's beside the point. So we're in the we're in the van. We're headed to the school, and um, we always had this particular radio station on local station. Um, pr- primarily plays um, contemporary uh, music, you know, pop stuff, um, soul. Uh, and there's this particular DJ on the show, and his name is Funky Larry Jones. And so my radio was always on that station. I never changed it. And in the morning when we would t- I would take the girls to school, there was always this crazy banter. They had this funny stuff they'd be talking about every morning. So it would always give the girls and I a laugh on the way to school. And it was the kind of humor that a mom and her kids could share. And, you know, so it was, it was always life-giving. But I realized this particular morning we're driving down the street and Funky Larry Jones said something that was funny. And I just kind of smiled. And when I smiled, it wasn't even a full kind of smile. My, my face and the corner of my mouth hurt. And I had just gone kind of a, a little partial smile like that. And in that moment, I felt the pain in my face and it made me cry because I wondered how long had I been feeling the the muted experience of this depression and how long had I had it been since my kids had seen me laugh or smile and uh, I cried because of how long it seemed it had been. And I cried because it was the first time that I could remember doing it. And I was so grateful to be able to recognize that something must be happening within me, some kind of healing must be occurring, that I could hear something funny and be able to laugh about it. And it was a genuine laugh. Um, you know, because we can learn how to, there's this great commercial on for some kind of depression medicine, and it shows this lady with a mask. She's holding this, like, fan, and it's got a smile on the front of it, and so she raises it up whenever somebody's talking to her, so they think she's happy and engaged, and really you see that she's not. And so I realized that I had been in that space of trying to project that I was okay when I wasn't, you know. Um, And so that moment was, oh my gosh, it was one of those little turning point kind of moments that was both sad to have realized how long it had been since I smiled, and then at the same time how grateful I was that I could smile, you know. You know, we, we take so much for granted. The ability to respond to humor has so much to do with uh, our cognition and everything functioning well in the mind and in the brain, rather. Although I'm not sure if it's, if it's not mind and brain, you know. Um, 
And so in that moment, it was one of a lot of little moments that were signals to me that I had moved from the darkest points of that experience and that I was starting to experience some light again. I remember one day um, being at home and not even realizing that I had closed the blinds and the drapes in my bedroom. And so my bedroom was totally dark. And I, for some reason, got up and went to the front door and opened the door. And, And during this entire depression, I couldn't feel stuff. I couldn't feel like if there was a breeze, I couldn't feel the breeze. If the sun was shining, I couldn't feel the sun shining. And that particular day, for some reason, I walked outside and I literally felt the sun on my face and on my body. And it was, it was a divine moment. It was like knowing that I was going to be okay. That I wasn't, I wasn't going to die like this. That, I, that, that something was starting to take hold that was helping to create new life in me. And that was, that was wild. That was wildly beautiful. Yeah. That was good. Well, you said something else earlier, too. Because um, it's weird. I'm assuming you, you're, you're having these experiences of walking to the other room and then seeing the chicken and the squirrel. You're also following this voice and I noticed you said that a number of times in your in the chapters you sent you know, you'll say God spoke mm-hmm. you know, and I, I'm wondering if you differentiate that voice between other voices that show up for you I do yeah yeah I don't know what my question is there other than you know, back to your idea of preaching, you know, how do people believe, you know, what you believe and how to, how do you imagine people trust out of the many voices, you know, mm-hmm. how do they trust any of those voices? And in particular, how do they come to know one of those voices as something that's divine? Mm-hmm. You know, and in some ways I, I, I don't know that it's the same for everybody. Yeah. You know, I think um, it's a very individual experience because I know I have friends that for them, just as that moment in nature with me having that awareness between the squirrel and the chicken, there are, I have a number of friends that they get their clarity in nature. Mm Mm-hmm. I have a number of other friends who get their clarity in their creative experiences, Mm -hmm. whether that creativity is programming a computer or uh, the creative experience of throwing pottery or abstract art uh, or or any kind of art for that matter. Mm -hmm. I think I am a verbal person and I'm a visual person. And so I tend my my inner knowing comes verbally. And it comes visually. And so I think people um, have to find their own way of tuning into the knowing. 
And I really think it can be different for different people. Are you a thinking type? You know, I've done those Myers-Briggs and so forth, and I can't remember um, my um, letters. For some reason, I don't know why. I'm actually, I can tell you I'm an introvert, Mm -hmm. but I'm an introvert, my daughter says, who knows how to be on the big stage. So I know how to be present when I need to be present, but my preference and what gives me the power to be present is to be in silence and solitude a lot. Then I can be present. Right. Um, I can't remember if I'm a thinking or judging. Do you remember what the what the different differences was between the two? I do. It's it's the way that we come to kind of experience our reality. Right. And so the thinking sensation, um, feeling, and intuiting, mm-hmm. and um, I, I I'm. I have a guess, but I just wonder, well, I wonder if it's, um, um, INT. I think it is INT. Yeah. I would, I probably, but, and that was more of the traditional, I mean, the fourth, was later um, when Jung did, um, when Myers and Briggs came along. Right. And so uh, I-N-T-P. But, yeah. I, I just wonder. I, I I wonder about that because I, you really hit on something cool there that when I think about, you know, the different ways, Lionel Corbett has some of his, um, I forget which book, maybe The Religious Function of Psyche or The Psyche and the Sacred. And he talks about how the religious life approaches people differently. And, you know, some people need mala beads and, um, you know, are very devoutly uh, oriented to their rituals, you know, or some people hear a voice from within and they mm-hmm. pay it to some, their dreams, you mm-hmm. know, some, they exactly. want. some it's a, as you're saying, right. Yeah. Some, a vision, kind yeah. of an outer vision, others exactly. an intuition where yeah. it's not, it's not a voice or anything. It's just kind of a knowing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm I'm glad we stumbled into this because I think that's so important for people to, yeah. as you said, right? Not it's different for everybody, and kind of maybe maybe it's even off that we give the term voice to that. Right. Um, maybe image is is a bit more general. What kind of image comes up for you, or I don't know. But you obviously have, and have had, and relate to a voice mm-hmm. within you mm-hmm. that you experience as different mm-hmm. from the other multiplicity of voices mm-hmm. that, that show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I took note of that. I just, I, I think I was really touched by your, your trust. That's taken me a long time to, to cultivate, mm-hmm. but I think a great part of it came because of this experience with the depression, the d- dark night of the soul, right. because in that time, all the other kinds of voices went away. And when I say kinds of voices, as an example, the ego voice, you know, the voice that tells you you should something, something, something that went away because I didn't have the capacity to should anything. Uh And so it was it was literally just me and the voice that I call the voice of God within me. Um, I remember that particular day when I couldn't get out of the bed to go to the restroom I was straddled well I was laying on my side of the bed and I thought 
why is it I don't know how to get out of bed? And the restroom was very close, like that door in your study. And I'm saying, why can't I get out of this bed? And so then it came to me, not the voice kind of came. This was just a trying to be rational. I thought, okay, if I'm a pencil and I can roll, I can roll off the bed. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just try to roll myself off the bed and I'm not even thinking about the fact that I'm going to fall you know three feet or whatever on the floor and so I start trying to roll and and so I'm I'm rolling and then all of a sudden I hear now this is the voice that I hear as God say look at you you can't do anything for me but I love you but the way I heard that was this look at you you can't do anything for me now. How are you ever going to live up to what I needed you to be and what I need you to do? But I love you anyway. That's what I. That's how I heard it. Just like the way I heard what Pittman said, yeah, and I took yeah, it I in a different the field. Sure, sure. And so then, I just I couldn't move, and so I just laid there, and I'm so grateful that I couldn't move. Because the voice that I hear as God said to me, that's not what I said. What I'm saying to you is, look at you. You have exhausted yourself in trying to please people, in trying to get acceptance and approval, and you've not taken care of yourself. And I want you to know that I love you even if you can never do anything. That was a very different message. And in that moment, I realized that I had created a God in my own image, in my own understanding. And in that moment, I also realized that God was something, someone, an entity that I had boxed in and that God wasn't anything like I thought God was. Because for me, God was a judger, always looking for performance, you know, um, a cross between Judge Judy and Santa Claus. <laughs> Got a list, checking it twice to see if you've been naughty or nice, yeah. you know. And in that moment, part of the dark night of the soul is about not only, I think, a falling away of the self you have believed yourself to be, but it's also a falling away of the God that you believe God to be. And it's um, this is one of the things that God within me said that I had boxed myself in by the rules that I was living with because I was very rule conscious. Because if you're trying to get acceptance and approval as a child, that means you're also trying to follow all the rules. And so then to make sure you follow the rules, you make more rules to safeguard that you'll never break the rules. And so one of the things that um, later on, helped me was Dallas Willard's ideas around God and how 
we're always being invited to let God out of the box of our making. And so all of those kinds of things were happening in these different ways. Not, and it, it never felt overwhelmed. It literally felt like I was in class. And some days God would say, okay, I'm going to share something with you. And so then that's when the squirrel and the chicken show up. And then that's when I realized I hadn't smiled and, and what that felt like physically. And then to be able to reflect and, and to be grateful for the pain in my face that I felt because I smiled. Um, and so I just tried to pay attention and take good notes. Thank you for that. You said earlier, on this theme, you said earlier you're a contemplative. Mm -hmm. you, know, you like to, back to that, you know, it's not exclusively typological, but certainly that fits. And you, you said something, a line earlier, I wrote it down, the mystical teachings of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then... I kind of want to hold these two ideas together because then you said earlier we were talking about Thurman and you said black mystic. Mm -hmm. So I wonder where these terms or phrases come together and how they're separate. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you, if you feel inclined, you could start with the mystical teachings of Christ and mm -hmm. then go into what is a black mystic. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm assuming it's not just a mystic who is a black person. I'm imagining it has a different kind of ontological reality to it, given the nature of the culture exactly. uh, and political dimensions, sure. certainly, that are imposed. So, if yeah. you so the idea of the mystical teachings of Christ, well, you know, um, I, I think a, a good way to look at it is this. Often when Jesus was with the disciples and he was teaching to the masses, he would then have to take the disciples apart and say, now, let me tell you what I just told you. Okay. And most of the time they would go, oh, and that, oh, meant, oh, oh, you know, in essence, I'm going to really have to sit with that to live into understanding what that really means, you know. Um, and what I'm, what I'm learning and really it's the practice, well, many things. Meditation has been an important tool in my life since the Depression. Uh, also, there's a practice called Lexio Divina. Are you familiar with Lexio? I'm not. You said that earlier, and okay. I thought I wanted to circle back. So Lexio Divina um, is a Latin phrase, and it means divine reading. And so it's reading the scripture, not so that you can impart what you know on the text, but so that the text can impart something on you. Hmm. So as an example, uh, with Lexio, you might read, um, um, the Lord is my shepherd. And you read it again, the Lord is my shepherd. And you see what word seems to stand out for you. And then you reflect on that word and you invite the spirit, the God voice, nature, life, to speak to you on, why did that word stand out for me? And so in Lexio, it invites us to engage 
in the scripture in a way that is far more mystical in that it invites us to be present to how the word is trying to be present to us right here, right now. So we have the sacred text. And of course, we can study the Hebrew and the Greek origins of the words and all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how is the word shepherd standing out to me right now? And why is that so important to me right now? Okay, so then I I sit with it a while and I think, okay, so what does a shepherd do? A shepherd cares for a sheep. Okay, so this idea of shepherd and me being able to see that even in the darkest point of my life, I'm being shepherded. So A, I'm not alone. Mm. And B, a good shepherd always goes out into the field and clears it of any debris before he puts the sheep in that pasture so they're less likely to hurt themselves. So God has already gone ahead of me in this and made the way safe for me. So I can even be safe in my not knowing. I can be safe in this darkness. I can be safe in this sense that my life is really falling apart all around because it really is. But I've got the safety of knowing I'm being shepherded. If Jesus had taught on the 23rd Psalm, he would have just said to the masses, I'm your shepherd. To the disciples, the closer he got to Jerusalem, he would have said to them, I will shepherd you through this very dark night of your soul because that's what you're going to experience. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I worked a lot with um, texts, holy texts, and various interpretive lenses. And um, that, to me, goes under this anagogic, you know, is the term, but it's a symbolic, you know, you're looking, really looking for the symbol and what's, what's your relationship to that. And it's an in certainly an, more of an intuitive knowing mm-hmm. where you're kind of communing and letting it affect you mm-hmm. as exactly. opposed to this kind of intellectual, um, uh, orientation that, that wants to look at kind of back to your, you know, what's the etymology and what's the, you know, which is valuable, you know, I think the cool thing, but you, you've given it n- new life for me. I can't wait to go look that up. I, I like that a lot. But, and again, where I go with that is, you know, we tend to go to scripture or some, some holy book, you know, or, but I could do that with a leaf. Oh, absolutely. You know, and like, that's what's beautiful about Lexio. Yeah. This idea of divine listening. Yeah. You can do Lexio in your life. You can look at last week, maybe it was a horrible week, and you sit back and you say, so as I recall last week, this happened and I felt these things, and so what is it here for me? What is it that wants to be seen and wants to mm-hmm. be known? What is it that I need to pay attention to? Um, oh, <laughs> I don't know why I just thought about this, but I'll, I'll share it. <laughs> In this process, you ask me, uh, like, what was leading up to the depression? I remember one day, because we talked about Lexio on life, mm-hmm. okay? So I remember one day driving, 
headed to the office. I had dropped the girls off and I was headed to the church. And on Yale Street, there's a place where there's a bridge that runs parallel to Washington Avenue and Yale. And so you go under the the railroad tracks Mm -hmm. and you come up to a light. Well, I was there and I was in my car and I was so wound up and I didn't know how to get unwound. So I took um, um, a meditation tape and I put it in the tape player and I had put some incense in my purse and I lit the incense in my car on my way to church. And so I've got this meditation tape playing. I push in the cigarette lighter and the, it comes out. And so I'm, I've, I'm sitting at a stop place for the light and I light the incense, but I drop the cigarette lighter. So I take my foot off the brake because the cigarette lighter was falling near my leg. I was in bad shape. I was in bad shape. When I took my foot off the brake, I hit the car in front of me. Oh, that's balancing a lot. Yeah. And so we pulled over, exchanged information. The car really didn't look that damaged. But, you know, I gave him my insurance because I was wrong. I, I, I did not know that I was on empty. And even in that moment, I didn't know it. But when I reflected back and did Lexio on that moment, I realized that I had been empty. And I didn't know how to get myself out of this place. My life, I've often said, before the crash, I was like the ever-ready bunny. And you just keep winding me up, and I just keep going. And August 27th, I couldn't wind myself up, and I couldn't get out of bed. And so now I know there were things that were signs to me that something was wrong, but I did what I always did. I just pushed through them. Drank more tea. You know, uh, lit more incense. Uh, tried to pray more. Um because I kept thinking that surely there's a way that I can feel better, but I don't know what it is. Have you ever wound up a toy or something that you have to wind and you wound it past the point and so you end up breaking it because you wound it too tight Mm. and so the key won't go anywhere you can't That's where I was. And so that experience of learning to use tools like Lexio so that I could pay attention to my life. Sounds like a therapy. I mean, it's a... In many ways, it is a great therapeutic tool. It's, I mean, that a lot of times I think therapy is certainly that way. Somebody's going to sit across from you that you trust, hopefully. Yeah and ask questions of you that you may not be asking of yourself. And you know, it's really funny. I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things, um, I can't remember if I was in a workshop with Pittman or with James Hollis, uh, but, and maybe it wasn't even either of them, but I was in a workshop and it was my first time hearing that in 
the Christian church, the priests were actually the therapists. Yeah, Young wrote a paper on it in Psychology and Religion. It's called Clergy or Psychotherapy. I need, I, I want a copy of that. I'll I got to get that. I'll get you. Yeah. I got to get a copy of it because mm. this is what I came to know as a clergy person. Right. And that is somewhere along the way, the two got divorced from each other. Right. This is why we have, well, not why we have, this is the kind of center, the, 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 the point of the schism and why currently we have, I think, religious, spiritual, but not religious. So the, the, the kind of spirituality has left the container of the, you know, quote, yes. religious. And it's certainly found there, but I think there's a reason why Christian churches are really struggling because, and I think you're on to We've something. We've forgotten by, that. Well, I, I, and some of us don't even know it. That's right. And I, I had to find this out. It, it's like uh, a lot of contemplation, you know, the kind of mystical element is lost. Exactly. You know, it, it's all in kind of socialization and presentation. Exactly. And that's, I'm, I'm speaking kind of generally, of course. I'm, I'm, of course. But I, I, you know, to this thing, the you know, mystical teachings of Christ, it's like, where's the, where's the juice of all this stuff? You know, yeah. where's the stuff that like w makes me want to go out and look at a leaf and exactly. contemplate my life? And, exactly. Uh, and it's there. It's there. Right. I'm telling you it's there. So as an example, um, I, I've just started a garden. I've always <laughs> wanted a garden. And um, I've, I've had other gardens, but they were usually flowers and, and that kind of thing. But this is a vegetable garden. Mm. And I am growing uh, vegetables in a plot that's not much longer than, uh, what is this, maybe seven feet? Right. And about four feet wide. And every single day, my husband and I eat out of this garden. Mm, that's so good. And I am, oh my gosh, when you look at the text and how often Jesus uses parables and teachings that relate to sowing and reaping and gardens and, and fields, and all of a sudden now you see something so different and you think, oh my God, that's what he was talking about. That's the mystical teachings. And what's needed is space. That space might be space, spaces of silence, spaces of reflection, spaces for solitude. Because Richard Foster always says, busyness is not of the devil, it is the devil. Oh, no. So the reality <laughs> is, as far as Richard is concerned, and, and I, I would have to agree, I'm seeing this more and more. The busier we are, the less time we have for reflection, the less time we have to go into the deeper mystical understanding, I believe, that most religions offer us. Right. Because there's light. I, I, well, we won't, we won't discuss that here. I have my own notions about the fact that I believe that there's God presence in many of the traditions. And many of us are just living off of the surface words and never experiencing the deep mystical realities that make you go, oh my God. Or, or we, we, because it's not in our as present in our worldview, we write it off. We, we have do. the ex we just we, do. uh, we don't look at it. We you know? do. 
or we think we're crazy or why the fuck yeah. would I listen to that voice inside of me? Exactly. Like, that's or what is a dream, you know? Yeah. And my you're you're it's great you're doing the gardening cuz it's that you know the agricultural metaphor is yeah. really rich. Today we have a computer metaphor and we call each other things like wet robots and we're the kind of machine meat machine, you yeah. know that yeah. I, we've lost a lot of the Things have become mechanistic and, exactly. you said earlier, materialistic, rather than relational. Right. And, you know, oh my, I had a garden um, years ago, and we're actually putting one in pretty soon. Oh, I'm good. really excited. Oh, yeah, it's going to be good for your it's son. It's so good. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I did this for our grandson. He lives in Indy, and I want him to be able to come here and get to know God in the dirt. Yeah. Oh, that's like, that needs to be on a T-shirt. Well, before we, because uh, I know we got to start kind of wrapping things up a bit. I do want to get to that question about Black Mystic. So I came into the um, the world, the introduction to the world of mystics through the Cynical Retreat House here in Houston. It's a Catholic retreat house. The Cynical Sisters throughout the world are known for providing hospitality so that people might engage in silence and solitude and um, learning and uh, workshops and classes and all that kind of thing um, with the notion that providing a safe, sacred space for the soul to be tended. And they are incredibly gifted at that. Um, and so around that time, and it, I might have even been going a little bit before 99, um, I started taking workshops and things at the Cynical. Um, they're off a memorial. And um, so I would go out and there's all these trees and it's surrounded in beauty and so forth. And um, it became the place for me where I um, learned to engage in these spiritual practices that Richard Foster had talked about in his book, The Celebration of Discipline. Because I had never heard of some of these practices. I mean, prayer, fasting, worship, celebration, those are commonplace, you know, to some extent. But then there were deeper elements of prayer that I had mm. never engaged in beyond just rote prayer and maybe, you know, the kind of prayer that you pray when you say, get me out of this, you know. <laughs> um and, you know, a few other things, Lord, bless my mom and dad and, you know, you know, give us traveling mercies when we go to the, you know, whatever, um, you know. But then at the cynical, I was introduced to the to the the long mystical history of Christianity. And I'm thinking to myself. St. Francis of Assisi, I didn't grow up Catholic, so I didn't know these saints. Mm hmm. I didn't know about the desert fathers and mothers, the Abbas and the Amas who left busy society where they were in many cases being uh, persecuted to say, you know, life's got to be better than this. We're leaving this town. We're going to the to the to the wilderness. Yeah. And these were men and women in Africa. All right. Who were going out to find what does it mean to have a life with God? What does that look like? which is more of what Dallas Willard talks about. What does it really mean to have a life with God? And so at the cynical, I, uh, as I began to recover, I enrolled in their spiritual direction program. And in it, you're taken through the history of the mystics. 
And you get to see how the mystics were really the psychotherapists because they were the ones who had devoted time and silence and solitude and reflection, not just, you know, going through the motions of of what's next on the to-do list for today, but people who had devoted their entire life experience to what does it mean to say that I follow God? Um, And it took me a while to realize how racism had played a role even in how we saw the mystics. That here all of these people who had set their lives apart for God had come out of Africa. And so my people have come out of Africa. But I had no connection to these people. And how somehow the mystics are painted with this light color brush instead of a more brown brush. And then I find out about a mystic. He's African and he's a black African. And I'm like, how can we not have known about these people? And what is it they need to tell us that we need to know? So that we're not spiritual, but not religious. You know, something had happened for me. And what was happening is that for so long, my Christian training was, there was Jesus and the disciples, and now there's us. But what about the long history of people (laughs) between Jesus and the disciples and us? And, And how were they learning how to live with God in relationship to all the stuff they had going on in their lives. I'm still trying to remember his name. It's not coming to me. But anyway, (laughs) St. Monica's Catholic Church is in Acres Home, which is a black neighborhood. And that's a good thing that St. Monica's Catholic Church is there because St. Monica was black. But I had never heard that. And so... When you talk about the fact that I mentioned Howard Thurman being an African-American mystic, it was like finding out, um, which I did not long ago, I grew up in a traditional Baptist, African-American Baptist culture, but I recently found out that one of my great aunts was a United Methodist circuit rider. A circuit rider was a person uh, when a when a congregation didn't wasn't able to afford a pastor, a circuit rider would go from church to church and preach in in small churches. So uh, on one Sunday you're preaching in Greens Point area, and the second Sunday you're preaching in Sharpstown, and the third mm-hmm. uh, Sunday you're preaching in River Oaks, the fourth Sunday you're preaching in Westview, and in, in various communities. I found out one of my relatives was a female circuit rider, and I was like, oh my God. How is it that I'm a United Methodist pastor and I have gotten the Circuit Rider Award? I've been given that award. And to find out that I have a relative who was a circuit rider. And, I mean, you know how when you make these connections, I see for, for white America, those connections are easily made because you have documents. But when your ancestors are slaves, 
and you have no records, you can feel cut off. And so to find out that here was Howard Thurman, this black African-American, black mystic, who was talking about his experience of growing up in a segregated Florida, who would become the first African-American to be the dean of the chapel at Boston University in the 50s. And for me to go through this journey and to realize that I long to be a mystic and I define mystic as someone who is stopping to hear and stopping to see God and to have someone like Howard Thurman who has done this in a challenging racial environment. And he was able to empower Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and others. He was able to encourage them to use the tools of the mystic, of the Amas and the Abbas, because they didn't know this history. To use these tools to help ground them inwardly so that they could do the outward work that was necessary for seeking justice. Now, each of them went about it in different ways, but I am just head over heels about the fact that there's this black man who lived in America that I had never heard about until about six years ago. And so it's been, you know, we use the word awesome a lot, <laughs> but I want to say, oh, so to find that here's this person that I can feel so connected to. Not that I didn't feel connected to some of the other mystics, but it's like anything else. You're Irish and all of a sudden you find out there's this great Irish uh, mystic. You want to know more about him because you got something in common with him, you know? <laughs> and so that's kind of where I am right now. I'm in awe of Howard Thurman. Uh, he was criticized a great deal because uh, some blacks, as with anything, people have opinions. Some felt that he should have had a, a, a more uh, central role in the civil rights movement. Um, but I think there's great merit in knowing your place. And when I say your place, your call. Mm -hmm. Knowing that you're called to say to a Martin Luther King, I think you need a sabbatical. This movement needs you alive and you need some rest. Which I understand he said that to Martin Luther King. He said it when Martin Luther King was stabbed by this woman in a church meeting. And he was in the hospital. And I think from what I understand, I don't know about the timing of all this, but from what I came to understand, that's when Martin Luther King went to India as a way of getting away from the movement. But in doing so, met Gandhi and then was able to understand this idea of peaceful nonviolence. Sabbatical, the Sabbath, the necessity of rest, all of these are um, practices that the mystics, the early church fathers and mothers, try to help us to understand their value. And I can tell you that if you are working with hurting people, Sabbath is critical to your own well-being and to the well-being of those you serve.
If you're a therapist, you need a Sabbath and you need sabbatical space because in the sabbatical space, there is space for recreation Play. and recreation. Yeah. And so often our society tells us that production is important because we're good Puritans. We're good Puritan producers, you know, and we value people by their production. But the reality is play is as important as anything right. to giving space in the inner being to breathe, to reconnect with life and the wonder of it and the joy of it, you know, the spontaneity of it. The, <laughs> You know, I remember one day my daughters um, were little and it's when I, I think this is when I was starting to come out of the depression. Um, it started to rain, and for African-Americans traditionally, uh, especially when we press our hair, which is to add heat, mm -hmm. y'all do it now, you flat iron your hair, you know. Well, we flat ironed ours so we could fit into this society in America, right? And so one of the things you grew up hearing was, don't get your hair wet, because it was going to take your mama an hour or two hours to straighten your naturally curly hair. So there was always this running away from the rain, all right? And so this particular day, it was raining outside. And I had never seen water stand in our street before, but that day it was at the curb level. And so I told my girls, let's go outside and play in the rain. They had never heard a mother say that either, okay? And so here we go, outside, we take off our shoes, and we're dancing and singing in the rain. And it's a memory to this day, my girls say it was just, amazing it was it was like um something magical had happened that day um and it had that was their 10-foot ice sculpture around a table yeah yeah <laughs> you know Juanita it is so easy to find you absolutely captivating I, I mean you the way you speak is um I really appreciate this thank you yeah what are we leaving out? Maybe nothing. Maybe nothing. If I could leave the audience with anything, I would ask them to find a way to engage with wonder. And for me, that comes in intentional reflection time. And there's a beautiful practice called the examine. Are you familiar with that? The examine is a practice that St. Ignatius of Loyola taught his monks. Um, he said that sometimes the days would be so busy you might not be able to pray. Mm -hmm. But don't end a day without doing the examine. So the examine invites us to get quiet. We take some deep breaths and we center ourselves. And we ask ourselves, in the past, you know, since this morning, today, what gave me life? And so I would have to say, being here with you today has been very life-giving. Me too. And then in that reflection, to thank God for it. Mm -hmm. So God, thank you for my time with John today. It was very life-giving. But then also to pay attention to the day from this morning to now to say, what wasn't life-giving? And I had a moment today that wasn't life-giving. It, it didn't go as smoothly as I would have liked. 
Um, and it was a situation where I had to take something to exchange because I bought the wrong size. And hmm. there was a salesperson that didn't respond um, as warmly as I would have liked. And she's normally very warm towards me, but she wasn't on this situation. And so I um, left out of the store and I said, that didn't go nearly as well as I would have liked it. And, it, and there was nothing really said, but it was in body tone and movement and that kind of thing. And so I reflected on it and I thought, okay, what could I have done differently? And then I thought about something I could have done differently. I don't know what was happening in her day to day that made this awkward or weird or whatever, you know. And I remembered that she had sent me a thank you note for having made a purchase in December. And I thought, oh, I wish I had remembered to say to her, thank you for that lovely note you sent me. Because she sent that note to me at a time when both of my parents were in the hospital and my sister was ill and I became caregiver. And so I wish that I had remembered to tell her that how much I needed and appreciated her note because perhaps it would have done something good for her and it certainly would have been good for me because just remembering it was good for me. And so when we give ourselves permission to reflect, to invite wonder, I wonder what would happen if I fill in the blank, blow bubbles. There's such a depth of life in both wonder and in reflection. I had mentioned at the beginning of our time that when we reflect on bad things, the same chemicals that flooded our body when that, quote, bad thing happened, reflood our bodies. But you can also reflect on good things, and those good memories cause good chemicals to flow through the body all over again. I wonder what it would be like if more of us, in our reflecting, doing the examine, saw the things that weren't so life-giving and were grateful that we could see that there was a different way we could have approached life. And then when we saw those things that were life-giving, we're grateful that we had experienced those life-giving things. And then we go to bed with that on our mind. How might we awaken in the morning? What person might we be in the morning when we face a brand new day with its challenges and its opportunities, but we went to bed grateful? We went to bed in a sense of wonder, maybe something about the day took us to that magical, mystical, wonderful place, you know? I think it could be a very different world. Mm. For all the things that religion um, may not be for people, religion really is a gateway 
to coming into contact with both spiritual practices and spiritual insight that are designed to help transform the spirit, to help mature and grow our spirit. And so I wonder what it would be like if religion universal gave everybody its best stuff, its best practices. There were no secrets about those practices. This sect knows this part, this sect knowing that part. Ooh, it might even be heaven on earth. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm glad you're a hugger because I got to hug you after our conversation. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. I love hugs. They say we need seven hugs a day for well-being. Oh, amen to that. I'm going to need 20. I know you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're right. <laughs> Thank you, Anita. Thank you. So meaningful. Thank you. Thank you.